Welcome to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm your host, Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis is all about our city as an urban place, including its neighborhoods, buildings, pathways, and parks, as well as the people who shape it. Join us each week as community leaders and commentators talk with me about our shared built environment. Welcome back to Memphis Metropolis, everybody. You're listening to WYXR 91.7 FM in Memphis, and I'm Emily Trenum. I'm the host. Today, I'm welcoming yet another very special guest, John Zena, who is the director of the Memphis and Shelby County Division of Planning and Development. So welcome, John. Thank you, Emily. So, John, we have a we have a, a, a number of things we're going to talk about today. Um, Memphis 3.0 is having an anniversary of sorts. We're going to talk about that. Before that, um, I want to talk about a new uh, platform that you launched um, for people that want to do development projects called Develop 901. But before we get to either of those, um, just tell us what the exactly what the division of planning and development is. I think people, a lot of people probably kind of sort of know, but what is it? And then where does it fit? Um, not so much where does it fit in the Shelby, Memphis Shelby County government, but what are the different functions that fall under it that people might have experience working with? Okay, thank you. Um, so the Division of Planning and Development is a joint city of Memphis and Shelby County division. It's it's the only uh, division that, that shares that joint role um, between city and county. And what we are largely responsible for is the long range planning functions uh, for the city and county, uh, the, the zoning uh, administration of the city and county, uh, as well as the building department, the, uh, the uh, office that enforces the building codes for the city and county. Um, so people will likely be more uh, familiar with us, uh, you know, if they've uh, participated in Memphis 3.0 with our comprehensive planning department, um, which is under the division. We also have our sustainability and resilience department, uh, formerly known as Office of Sustainability, uh, which led uh, the Sustainable Shelby Initiative or was an outgrowth of the Sustainable Shelby Initiative and led the Mid-South Greenprint Initiative. Um, We also have um, a housing department um, uh, as well as our uh, regional transportation department, which staffs the Memphis MPO. Uh, so uh, across the board, you know, we have housing, transportation, uh, and long-range planning uh, within those departments as well as sustainability. Uh, our zoning office, people typically know as OPD, uh, which administers the Unified Development Code, the UDC for uh, the city and unincorporated county. Uh, and then, of course, staffs the, the boards and bodies that deal with, uh, you know, development um, review, land use review, uh, and then of course our building department uh, is is where uh, all building permitting is done for uh, not only the city of Memphis but most of Shelby County. There's actually only two municipalities that have their own building departments, and we serve the rest of the county. Well, and I guess a couple layers down from this also is Landmarks Commission, and I ask because um, I've been doing a number of shows on historic preservation. Um, and had a, a couple of um, 
you know, new landmarks districts, proposed new landmarks districts on a couple weeks ago. So, so that falls under um, the Office of Planning and Development, right, which is, like I said, part of your purview. That's right. So uh, the Memphis Landmarks Commission is, is one of three boards and commissions that are uh, that our zoning office staffs, uh, and, and we've, we've actually rebranded that uh, department to land use and development services, uh, but our, the way that historic um, uh, districts work in, in Memphis and Shelby County is that they are uh, a zoning overlay, so uh, the enforcement of uh, the historic design guidelines is sort of part and parcel of the Unified Development Code of our zoning code. Well, one of the things just, you know, I like to digress. Um, one of the things that I think that I've been heartened by over the last couple of years is the creation of new landmarks districts. You know, at one point, the, um, the division of planning and development after the, you know, mid 2000s recession, the staff was so small that, um, that there was kind of a moratorium on starting new landmarks districts. Um, and, but yet there are neighborhoods that want to get that kind of local protection. So I've been happy to see that. Um, I realize it's a, it's a, you know, an additional management and work for your staff, but I think it's important. Yeah, it's, it certainly has um, added, uh, you know, additional workload to our staff, but we've we've also taken steps in the last couple of years to bring, um, you know, to bring highly uh, educated and capable staff uh, on board to be able to uh, help uh, not only serve those districts but the Landmarks Commission as well. So uh, the secretary to the Landmarks Commission, Brett Ragsdale, uh, is a, a trained and registered architect, uh, which I think is a very important asset for us to have on staff uh, to assist that that commission. Uh, I don't believe we've we've ever had an architect on staff uh, serving the Landmarks Commission. Uh, and then uh, we also have uh, staff with uh, um, more formalized training and education and historic preservation to assist as well. Well, that's actually a great transition um, to talk about develop 901 uh, before we get to Memphis 3.0, because, um, I mean, I know just from talking to you that you've been working on develop, develop 901 for a long time. Um, and, and part of, I guess, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think part of the overall goal is just to make it, um, easier for, you know, developers of all size to get the services and um, information they need. And it, I think, uh, uh, you know, recruiting Brett, um, I think, was part of that. So people have, um, you know, people get the resources they need and that there's benefits of both sides. Like I said, you're the um, the experts. So I should probably should be asking you just about what is Develop 901 and then, you know, what are its goals and what were some of the, the barriers it was designed to overcome? So uh, the Develop901.com is the new website for the Division of Planning and Development. Um, but it, it does encompass a lot more than just a new website. Um, you know, we 
early on when I became director, uh, and even before then when I was deputy director, uh, you know, we we identified and understood that um, the the development process that was that we administered for the city and, and the county was largely a manual uh, paper-based process. Um, it, it relied a lot on, um, you know, having uh, hired experts to help navigate through the process. Uh, and that was something that we wanted to try to uh, make more transparent uh, and more, more accessible, uh, not only to uh, people who uh, are interested in, in uh, developing, but also just, you know, building a home, building a, uh, you know, accessory dwelling unit, uh, building a new fence, uh, you name it. Um, what we wanted to do was, was to not only make the permitting process more uh, accessible and, and easy to understand, uh, but, um, also encourage more people to uh, to make sure that that the work that they're doing is permitted and inspected inspected uh, so that we can ensure that that um, you know we have greater compliance with uh, building codes and laws locally uh, but also you know greater uh, adherence to uh, the the public safety the goals of public safety that that are uh, enforced by the codes that uh, that we enforce through the building department. Um, so development901.com was, was rolled out uh, in large part because of a new online uh, permitting software system that we acquired and implemented uh, through a vendor called Acela. And what it allows is for anyone to be able to go on uh, and pull a, a, a building permit or electrical permit online um, and not only can you make an application and pay fees and track progress and, uh, you know, that sort of thing online, but uh, any member of the public can, can go on to uh, the citizen portal uh, of the, the new system uh, through development901.com uh, and be able to look at, at what activity is going on uh, throughout their neighborhood just by searching uh, by address. So uh, it not only has, has helped to be able to put the process, uh, make the process more access accessible and put the process more in the hands of, uh, of the general public, but also allow the general public to understand uh, better what's going on around them, uh, even if they themselves aren't, aren't, part, of the, the, uh, aren't part of a building project, uh, they can better know what's going on in their neighborhood, which is uh, often something that we get a lot, um, you know, from uh, calls that we get, you know, what people just wanting to know what's going on down the street. And uh, this is an opportunity to share that type of information. Well, how did people do that? Is there, I mean, I've looked at it several times. Is there, uh, you know, a find out? I mean, there's, there's a, there's, when you go to develop901.com, there's a number of, you know, buttons, the technical term mm -hmm. and, you know, get a permit. Um, but is there a button, find out what's going on in your neighborhood? Yeah. So there's a, a button that says search permit activity. Okay. Uh, and so once you once you click that button, as as you said, this is a very technical term here. Uh, once you click that button, um, it will prompt you uh, to be able to do a general search for applications. Um, and so you can search for uh, a street address, a specific street address, or just a street name. Um, and you can search for different types of applications that uh, have been filed. 
um, whether those be construction applications or planning applications. Um, and it will pull up anything that's either uh, in progress or uh, that's been submitted. Um, so any, any member of the public can see uh, applications that are in the system and, and uh, details about the applications and, of course, uh, the, the status of the application. And can you submit um, comments if, if things are still at the proposal stage? Um, no, there's, there's no way to submit comments uh, uh, through this portal. Of course, if, if there's anything that's being proposed and uh, it's, it's subject to a public hearing, uh, you know, there are certain avenues for that. And obviously, uh, you know, when, for example, something comes before the Land Use Control Board and there is a, uh, a public comment period, um, you know, we want to make sure that, that that's those public comments that are being submitted are uh, submitted through the right avenue so that they can be, uh, you know, part of the, the submission, the staff report, the record uh, when it uh, ultimately comes up for a hearing. So, um, I mean, I love this. Um, I would not necessarily have thought that search permit activity would unlock um, all those information resources. But um, so just food for thought. Um, but uh, but I love this. I, I would love I, I do think over the last couple of years, um, it's gotten a lot the communication um, about land use cases has gotten a lot better. That information is distributed a lot more broadly. Um, you know, now it's available through Nextdoor, which a lot of people, for better or worse, a lot of people use. And um, I do feel like there's um, that the like I said, the communication about land use cases and information about when when and how to respond is um, you know it's better than it's ever been. Um, but you know, if this at some point can incorporate that, um, that would be great. Well, thanks for the suggestion. <laughs> so let's, um, so let's shift gears and talk about Memphis 3.0 was having some kind of annual, but it got me thinking that it would be a good time to, you know, reflect a little, sort of celebrate the anniversary of it and of its adoption and reflect a little bit about, I mean, this is a document that's going to be around for a long time and it's very early in its, in its tenure, but still reflect a little bit about, before we reflect, just remind everybody what a, um, what a comprehensive plan is and why the fact that we adopted one a year ago was so important in the sort of planning and development history in Memphis. Okay. Um, so generally a comprehensive plan is, um, uh, this is, I'm, I'm using a term out of uh, the state uh, code now. It's a general plan for physical development within a jurisdiction. So, uh, when we talk about physical development, uh, you know, we mean, of course, uh, buildings, we mean civic spaces, we mean um, infrastructure, uh, all of the things that, that ultimately are uh, the, the built environment uh, of the city. Uh, the comprehensive plan seeks to guide 
how the, the physical development uh, of the city will change uh, over the next 20 years. Now, most of where we uh, concentrate our focus in a comprehensive plan is on the land use element. So thinking about how change changes over time, but also is regulated uh, through the zoning code over time. Uh, but then how that change in land use is also uh, supported and connected by um, our system of streets, our system of infrastructure, how uh, the neighborhoods that um, you know we have across the city are supported by uh, civic spaces, uh, but also how we um, achieve some of the uh, more socioeconomic goals of the city, uh, such as um, addressing housing policy or uh, economic development policy um, in a way that is co uh, consistent and coherent with uh, that policy for land use. That's ultimately what uh, a comprehensive plan is striving uh, to do. And Memphis 3.0 was no exception to that. Uh, we, we certainly um, considered all of those fundamental building blocks uh, of the city to construct into a consistent plan for how our city changes over the next 20 years uh, when we talk about physical development. Um, Memphis 3.0 was historic because it was, uh, as we said often throughout the process, the first plan of its type that Memphis has had uh, since 1981. Um, that plan was called the Memphis 2000 plan. Uh, obviously, it was casting a vision for what the city would look like or um, in, in at that time, 20 years up until the year 2000. But Memphis 3.0 is also only the fourth comprehensive plan that we've had as a city, uh, the first coming in 1922. So um, it, it, this is a rather rare occurrence for a city uh, like ours. Um, and so it, it was important and because not only um, of its uh, sort of position and, and history that we just talked about, but I think we're at a critical point in our city's history. We're, you know, we grew to roughly 340 square miles. Um, we are largely built out. Um, our city has recently taken actions to actually de-annex some of the territory that uh, it took in uh, within the last 20 years. Um, and so what we have done in Memphis 3.0 was to cast a vision for how our city will change um, by changing within and not changing by outward growth, uh, which is a first for uh, plans uh, for Memphis. Yeah, it's very, I don't know if, you know, people who aren't, you know, part of the planning or real estate world to really understand how you know, big a deal that was that Memphis did not, was highly unusual for, you know, a metropolitan area, a city, not to have a comprehensive plan. And that the lack of a plan um, really, as you said, you know, caused the city to really to spread out, but just um, directly impacted a lot of problems that our area suffers from now, poverty, blight. I mean, things we talk about all the time, um, 
I mean, maybe I'm editorializing myself, but you know, the lack of a plan um, contributed to um, our, you know, our inability to to until recently start chipping away at some of those problems. Sure, I, and and I agree, Emily. And I'll I'll just add though that you know our our prior plans and let's let's talk about Memphis 2000 specifically. You know, one of the major recommendations of that plan and from 1981 was to set an urban growth boundary, which at the time seemed somewhat forward-looking. Um, that urban growth boundary essentially is the extent of of how far we would put new infrastructure to be able to support new development. That boundary is looks a lot like what our city boundary is today. Um, and so in a way, we sort of planned that outward growth. I think at that time, the planners were probably hoping for more population growth. Um, that didn't really materialize. I think one of the things that we uh, articulated in the planning process was uh, since since that time, since that that plan in, in the early 80s, you know, we've we've grown our land area by 50 percent and our population has stayed fairly flat. So what what is the result of that? You know, neighborhoods, especially older neighborhoods, are being hollowed out and that results in a lot of the uh, blighting efforts uh, uh, or blighting effects rather uh, that you talked about. And so, um, you know, that was a that was a uh, an area of, of concern for us and, and, and focus for us in Memphis 3.0. You know, as we're planning for growth within, um, not only how uh, do we support areas with uh, um, with strong markets to be able to get new density that that uh, meets with the character of those areas, but how do we support new growth in uh, areas that right now may be weak markets uh, that ultimately, um, you know, the public self- sector can help to stimulate over time. Well, plus plans um, are only as successful as um, they are, you know, followed and implemented. And that's probably, you know, a bigger digression than we have time for today. But um, for sure, we have had plans in the past in Memphis and Shelby County that that were never that were the proverbial put on the shelf um, and never looked at again after they were adopted or they or or not adopted as the case may be. So if you're just joining us, um, you're listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. And we're talking to John Zena, who's with the Memphis and Shelby County Division of Planning and Development. And we're talking about the Memphis 3.0 plan. So, um, so John, remind us again before that about the, and I guess this will probably come up, but that a, a couple of things about the plan that you alluded to. Um, one is the, the framework of building up and not out. I'd like you just to kind of re-explain that for people. And then also the anchor, you know, the, the focus on, you know, anchors as a, but I think of those, those things are among the things that kind of underlie what the plan's about. Yeah. Um, So the vision uh, of the plan, uh, Memphis will build up and not out. It did good service for us uh, to, I think, get people to quickly sort of understand one of the main themes 
of the plan, which was, uh, which is exactly what we've been talking about, that the future growth of the city is no longer outward. You know, we've done that for 200 years and we've gone as far out as we possibly can. It's time to look inward. And in order to do that, we've got to uh, be able to build up our community. Um, and, and, you know, we were trying to go for, um, you know, the, the two sides of that, not only physically building up, but also building up places, like I said, that had been disinve- disinvested as a result of that older way of planning and developing um, by, uh, you know, investing in uh, those neighborhoods that, um, that, you know, where we might have weaker markets um, to stimulate new activity. Um, so not just about taller buildings, but actually investment, general investment. And also, I mean, there's a psychological, you know, an emotional piece. Like we that you care about all neighborhoods, not just some. Yeah, absolutely. So earlier you, you were talking about the, you know, the effects of the absence of a plan. Um, one of the first things that we did in the planning process was to uh, commission a, uh, a real estate market analysis for the city to understand, um, you know, the to, to understand that very question of, of strong markets and weak markets and, you know, what opportunities uh, the city had uh, at its disposal to be able to stimulate new growth uh, in areas that had had not seen new activity in quite some time. So one of the first key pieces of information that came out of that study that was, uh, I I think, really shocking to all of us was, um, you know, essentially without the intervention of a plan in a a no plan scenario, the market largely favored continued activity very narrowly along the Poplar Corridor, you know, from downtown to, you know, the eastern fringe of the city but more or less in that uh, Poplar Quarter, leaving out neighborhoods like Frazier and Raleigh and Whitehaven and uh, Hickory Hill and North Memphis and South Memphis. And, you know, looking at that analysis and, of course, um, presenting that analysis uh, in communities across the city, you know, it was clear that that was not going to work <laughs> as the future strategy uh, of our city. But we also had to think about, you know, if if we are going to follow this uh, this path of, of reinvesting in communities, we have to be very careful and very strategic about where we're recommending uh, that investment to go, because it's not just the direction of private investment, but it's the direction of public resources of which, you know, are limited uh, in order to stimulate that new activity. And so that's where the anchor concept came into play. You know, ultimately, every community across Memphis has significant assets. Um, you know, whether or not it's a strong market or a weak market from a real estate uh, perspective, there are still community assets, and those community assets are the things that bring neighborhoods together. Uh, and so that ultimately underpinned the idea of the anchor concept, where there are these centers of each neighborhood uh, that are that have a collection of these assets that can be built upon uh, to um, uh, uh, to stimulate new activities in those areas. Uh, and so those anchors were, you know, roughly 
a uh, hundred places across the city where, um, you know, again, whether strong markets or weak markets, we felt like those were opportunities to grow, to grow into the future, um, whether they be uh, in the downtown area uh, with, you know, taller buildings or whether they be uh, in, in neighborhood centers where we may be talking about a one-story, two-story house scale, um, uh, you know, cluster of uh, commercial uses, for example. Um, but that type of change uh, in and that anchor has the uh, has the possibility to have greater a greater influence on the stability of the community uh, and and infill in the community to be able to uh, uh, to help uh, bring that neighborhood uh, bring that neighborhood up in the future. Plus, it like it gets everybody on the same page. To me, if you, I mean, if government wants to go in and, you know, the city has some community development block grant federal funding they want to deploy in a particular neighborhood, they've got a roadmap. If there's, um, you know, a, a bank CRA officer wants to make some investments in the neighborhood, they know, okay, this is the place that, that the 3.0 plan has identified as a place that redevelopment could take place and you know, this ability for leveraging resources. So I see that as one of the big benefits um, of that strategy, especially in, a, in an era of very, very limited resources. I mean, speaking of block grants, we won't even talk about you know, how few we get. And I know that you know, tax budgets are gonna be squeezed now even more because of the pandemic. And I mean, people don't really know how how few redevelopment resources Memphis really has compared to a lot of other cities. And so to me, this is, this is in an, in an era of limited resources, you've just got to pick the places to start. So. You're absolutely right. So, um, so, so the plan is, you know, is, is roughly a year old in terms of the adoption. So talk a little bit about what, let's talk a little bit about what some of the, successes, some of the impacts you have seen, you know, thinking about some of the, you know, the zoning changes you've had, some of the small area plans you've had. I mean, you're definitely plans made, has made it possible to do things that would not have been as doable before. And there's been some, you know, some tangible positive impacts from that. Yeah, I think so. So, We'll start kind of, I guess, talking about the the regulatory side. You mentioned that you know the plans enabled us to do some things that we wouldn't be able to do otherwise. And uh, a good example of that is the comprehensive zoning changes, the comprehensive rezonings um, that have uh, one has been approved and and one is in the pipeline. And our our uh, zoning code says that a comprehensive zoning change is initiated. Uh, by the legislative body uh, in accordance with the comprehensive plans, which we have now. And we were able to use that to our advantage uh, along Lamar Avenue earlier this year after uh, Councilwoman uh, Jamina Swearingen had, had put in place a moratorium uh, after, you know, I think she had just seen enough in terms of uh, auto-oriented uses along Lamar Avenue, and especially in parts of Lamar Avenue that were um, you know, that, that bisected uh, neighborhoods and, and uh, many of the commercial uses there uh, 
uh, were centers of community and, and what she continued to see over and over and over again was this proliferation of uh, auto-oriented uses that in many ways just did not support um, uh, the surrounding communities. And uh, so what we did was uh, working with uh, Councilwoman Swearingen was to propose that, um, that change in uh, zoning along a portion of Lamar Avenue uh, mostly from CMU-3, which is our highest intensity commercial zoning district, to CMU-1, which is our lowest intensity uh, commercial zoning district. So that was a big, uh, I think, a big win for the plan. Uh, and, and we've got a second um, underway. So, so wait a minute. Before you, I want to ring my jargon bell. Okay. Because um, what... <laughs> What is in what's I tried. <laughs> what's intensity in this? Um, like, is one a dry cleaner and one is a an auto repair shop? Um, explain the differences because people think of taller buildings versus the the size of the building, but that's not really it. Yeah, uh, it's it's really. Um size of building it, it would be a part of the discussion of intensity emily but it's also about the externalities the effects of those land uses on the surrounding communities that helps to define intensity so a lot of auto oriented uses especially you know um, uh, gas stations for example you've got high volume of cars that uh, is is cycling through that lot and especially if those are right adjacent to uh, communities. There uh, are obviously a lot of um, uh, impacts of noise or light or trash that uh, might affect that community. So that that's the type of, uh, I guess, high intensity that we're talking about. Um, and um, I, I guess that was probably a good place for you to ring the bell because uh, we've, we've sort of rung the bell ourselves too um, in Memphis 3.0 where uh, we do have a low intensity commercial and a high intensity commercial uh, uh, land use types. Um, and we've found the need in this upcoming update uh, to better define what uses, uh, examples of uses we're talking about in between those two categories. So, um, um, so that, that, that's the, uh, the answer to the bell. Okay. So I interrupt. You were also talking about summer, which has some of the same requests um, for changes. Right. And, and I think a lot of the characteristics are the same here, too, where you've got, you know, a, a U.S. highway that um, is um, has bisected communities. It, it was once sort of a center of community. In many ways, the uses there do serve uh, the community, but um, a lot of the the uh, predominant uses of today tend to be favoring these more auto-oriented uh, highway sort of pass-through uh, uh, type uses that are not as supportive of the surrounding community. So what we're attempting to do is, is to bring back more of a balance of neighborhood-oriented commercial uses uh, in those areas. So that, that has been, uh, I, I think, one of the the, the key uh, benefits of having the plan uh, in this first year. Related to that, uh, I just uh, would like to add is, is having um, plan consistency uh, as being uh, part of the, the development review for each application that is, comes to the Land Use Control Board or the City Council. Uh, 
Um, essentially, just just you know the requirement that our staff look at the plan for each one of these cases and render an opinion on whether or not it is supportive or not of the comprehensive plan. And having that, I think, has been a big benefit uh, because it allows us to make, uh, I think, more informed choices about uh, how individual land use decisions contribute to a larger vision uh, and a larger, uh, a longer term plan uh, for the city of what we're trying to achieve uh, overall. Whereas before we had a plan, um, the the decision makers made their best um, uh, decision based on the facts available, based on uh, the input from the community. Um, but we did not have at our disposal that long range plan uh, of the city's future to also weigh uh, as a part of these decisions. So I think that has been important. And in fact, I think um, uh, several communities have, have benefited from being able to uh, to voice that uh, a certain proposal is inconsistent with the comprehensive plan and uh, have prevailed, um, you know, by making that argument. One that comes to mind uh, is in Whitehaven, for example. Yeah, I can't agree more, John. The, um, you know, I was on Land Use Control Board quite a few years ago now, and, um, you know, that's one of the uh, criteria that are supposed to be considered uh, is, you know, consistency with plans. But if there isn't a plan, it's it's very difficult and also doesn't, as you said, doesn't give, it gives the uh, the decision makers, um, the staff and, the, I mean, the staff's not a decision maker, they're advisors, but the advisors, but also the, you know, the appointed board members, it gives them um, something to, something, you know, recent to, to rely on, but also the community, it does. Um, I, I agree with you. I've definitely seen the community members um, bring that up and have encouraged people to say um, that that is, it's powerful that are really the implementation, how 3.0 is getting implemented. Um, talk a little bit about the ones you've done. And then we don't have, a, we don't have time to talk about this at length, but that, that the, the guide that you've put together to to help other people, other neighborhoods, you know, initiate one at some point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so in addition to, you know, all the kind of regulatory implementation we just talked about, uh, there's also um, the need for a plan to be implemented through further planning. And that sometimes sounds a little strange um, but, you know, it's we call it drilling down, you need to drill down. That's exactly what it is, because, you know, we produced a plan that had a citywide scale. And, um, you know, in order to do that, we looked at, uh, you know, 14 different planning districts across the city to help us, uh, you know, drill down a little bit. But there is a, a greater level of detail that certain neighborhoods may and even certain sites may require in order to understand questions of, you know, highest and best use, questions of, you know, dealing with certain, with uh, specific issues like housing affordability or, um, you know, commercial redevelopment. Uh, and the small area planning process allows us to drill down to that uh, neighborhood or 
anchor site based level to do more specific planning uh, for communities. And we've, we've done two already uh, in Raleigh at the Raleigh Town Center, uh, where, you know, obviously the city has invested heavily in new civic uses at the former Raleigh Springs Mall site, but there's also roughly 20 acres remaining on that site uh, for redevelopment. That was a great opportunity for us to go in and look at what the character of that remaining 20 acres, as well as some adjacent land at the intersection there, at Austin P and Yale could look like, um, uh, and, and, you know, what, uh, what it would take both from uh, a public investment as well as a private investment uh, perspective to be able to achieve that vision. The other area we looked is uh, the Whitehaven Plaza, Elvis Presley and Reigns anchor. Uh, similar type of situation. That That's a large parcel. It's in private ownership, uh, but there's a large portion of that parcel that uh, the, the property owner that's vacant, that the property owner is interested in, in maybe seeing change to a different use uh, from its former sort of strip commercial retail uh, use uh, and, and potentially even, um, you know, new housing on that site. Uh, so, so both of those were opportunities for us to look at uh, uh, two anchors within designated within the plan to understand, you know, what were opportunities to, uh, to redevelop those, those sites in a way that uh, better connected with the community uh, and better leverage those investments, uh, both public and private, that were being made to uh, to to bring up those those anchor areas. So you mentioned that we also uh, have produced a, a small area plan guide. We we have other areas where uh, we will be doing small area plans, uh, particularly in the new year. Uh, there's uh, six or seven different areas where we're going to be uh, getting started with small area plans. But we also recognize that that neighborhoods across the city. Um, have the ability to do their own planning, want to do their own planning. Uh, and so we've, what we've done is to produce a guide that's on our Memphis 3.0 website uh, about the small area planning process, the steps of the planning process, uh, helps to guide neighborhoods through the planning process uh, so that, that they can uh, produce a small area plan that, um, that has a, a lot of the types of elements that we're looking for uh, in our own plans. Uh, so, but also to ensure that, that it's being done consistent with Memphis 3.0. Um, and this kind of just goes back to that theme that, that you touched on a moment ago. There are a lot of plans that have been done in the past that sit on the shelf. This is not going to be one of them. It's already not one of them. Um, so as we continue to do planning for our community, we want to make sure that it's done in a way that, uh, that does have a sense of consistency so that those plans can be actionable uh, whether it's the city, the city's plan or the neighborhood's plan, they can be actionable over time. Well, and I'll post a link in the show notes for people who are listening from the Memphis Metropolis website or from a podcast platform. I'll, I'll, you know, paste a link to, you know, a number of the things we've talked about, the Develop 901 website, this, and then other things that, you know, we're talking about today that um, people might want to link to. So just, you know, a plan of this size, rolling it out across a large area that's going to have some hiccups. So just, you know, talk a little bit about that. I think, I mean, of course, I'm biased. I was, you know, very tangentially involved in helping with this on the front end and very excited to see it happen. But um, 
but there's always going to be bumps in the road. I'm thinking in particular, and this is really just one example the, you know, the build up, not out vision, which I think was pretty widely embraced. People understand that and why it's important from a variety of perspectives, you know, but when building up, not out is happening in your neighborhood and there's, you know, an apartment building going in and you're not happy about it. There's, there's, and this is human nature, really. Um, there's just tensions. I, I see them, you know, hear about them in particular as it relates to density. There may be some other hiccups, but just just talk about that for a minute. A- absolutely. So, you know, I, I mentioned build up, not out served as well, just in terms of getting uh, a, you know, just a sort of quick uh, idea of what the plan is about. But naturally, there are going to be questions like, um, you know, well, how far up are you talking and <laughs> where are you doing all this building up? Um, and I don't like the way it looks. <laughs> yes, exactly. So, uh, and, and all of that is natural. And, and so one of the things that we tried to do, uh, especially in the land use element of the plan, was not to base uh, our land use descriptions on, um, you know, very vague or formulaic density descriptions like moderate density residential of six to 15 uh, dwelling units per acre, which, um, you know, doesn't really give much of a description uh, of, of the type of character that we're talking about. What we did instead was, uh, was to look at uh, more character-based descriptions uh, of land use types. So, um, you know, someone can go on the map and uh, identify, you know, uh, the future land use type uh, of their community and, and compare that uh, with a, the associated land use type in the plan and see uh, not only, you know, what the, the character uh, of that area uh, looks like uh, in an ideal form, uh, but also, um, you know, the description, the goals, the intent uh, of, of that area. So uh, you get a little bit of the degree of how far up and, and what we're talking about. But obviously, you know, the, the, that part of it, the land use uh, element of the plan is still a recommendation. Uh, and, and so if there's a proposal that goes before uh, the land use control board, for example, there'll be a recommendation uh, associated with uh, Memphis 3.0. Uh, but uh, obviously there's a lot more details that get sorted out uh, uh, when we're talking about individual development review um, you know, whether it be design or materials or that sort of thing. Uh, but what we hope is that uh, there will at least be some, there will at least be better, a better sort of idea of character of how uh, places will, will look in the future and might change in the future uh, as a result of, of thinking about uh, the, the character side of land use and not necessarily just sort of the the more mathematical uh, side of density. Well, let me ask about that because to, because I feel like that is the source of some um, tension is that people are someone pushing it back on things that for whatever reason, they don't feel like blend in. 
And I'm not so, so much thinking about, you know, architectural design, although, of course, that happens as well. But things that seem to be out of scale in terms of, you know, massing or, um, but what's the, how does community character, is that too granular to be sort of covered by community character or, because I've always tried to think about, is there sort of a way to, I don't want to say bring the sides together because it sounds like a war and it's not, but, um, you know, is it design guide, is it more design guidelines for places or so you can, you can get these lots filled in, you know, these vacant lots, they need to be filled in and you can get to where you want to go. Um, but also, um, don't have as much pushback from, from neighbors or neighborhoods. Yeah. No, that's a that's a great question, Emily, and and I think a lot of it, you know, modifications to the Unified Development Code, for example, uh, the UDC has the contextual infill standards, which uh, I don't know if you're about to ring your bell, but um, you know the. the <laughs> I idea, won't explain it. <laughs> yeah, the idea is that uh, um, neighborhoods of a certain era, uh, you know have a, a, a additional layer of, uh, of review standards for any new infill, particularly residential infill, um, and, and whether or not there are, um, there is, is more scrutiny that needs to be paid to either the existing standards or review of, of potentially changes to those standards uh, that help address some of these, uh, these questions. A lot of them are, are, like you said, very granular. They're very specific. Um, and so the, they do probably go a good bit le- you know, deeper than just the, the community character-based land use descriptions of Memphis 3.0. But uh, I certainly see those conversations as being important for us to take up um, as we're implementing the plan. Uh, because it connects back to something you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the show, too, which is the historic districts. And particularly when we add this overlay, this historic overlay to neighborhoods, what we're, you know, we're adding additional layers of protection. We're also adding, you know, additional uh, administrative requirements as well. And so there has to be, um, you know, there has to be staffing that goes along with that. Um, and it may not necessarily be always the right place to institute historic zoning overlay, um, which is very well suited for uh, an area of sustain, to use a word from uh, Memphis 3.0. Um, but in other areas, something like, um, you know, a little bit more uh, of, of a little bit more at- attention into contextual infill standards might actually be the better answer uh, because it doesn't have that additional um, uh, layer of, of administrative review and approval and ultimately the fees and so forth that go along with that. So for example, and I'm making this, I was using this as an example, like there's a lot of vacant lots in a neighborhood like Orange Mound. And and so these 
these kinds of standards could at some point in the future come into a play in a neighborhood like that, which isn't going to become a landmarks district most likely, but could, um, you know, add an additional guidance as the neighborhood gets redeveloped in keeping with what the community wants to see. That's just an example, but am I understanding it correctly? So um, we don't have a lot of time, John, but did, did you, I know there's some proposed changes to the Unified Development Code that are in the, well, let me ask you about 3.0 before we leave that. Um, we didn't get a chance to talk about this, but there are, there are a number of proposed changes. And is there still an opportunity for the community to weigh in on that? I noticed there was a December 2nd deadline for initial comments. I just want to let people know, and, and I can put a link in the show notes, um, if people want to look at the proposed changes and send in input. Is there still an opportunity for that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so we released the changes on, on December 2nd. The, uh, we're, we're asking for public input. Uh, again, you can go to the Memphis 3.0 website to find the, the uh, summary of all the changes as well as uh, some of the details. And then there's also a link to submit your feedback to us. Those changes will be filed with the Land Use Control Board on January 7th, uh, which will mean that they go on the February 11th Land Use Control Board agenda. So there is time between now and February to still okay. submit comments on those. Um, and, and you're right, there are a few things that we are uh, looking to update or looking to do a few map changes um, to better define the, those definitions between low intensity and high intensity commercial. We talked about that already. Um, and then also to um, uh, adopt the two small area plans we talked about, as well as the complete streets uh, plan, which started with the Complete Streets Manual and has adapted somewhat to um, uh, to uh, take in the recommendations uh, from the land use the, the land use recommendations of Memphis 3.0, as well as the Climate Action Plan to adopt all those into the appendix. Um, so that's largely what we're looking to do, um, and we're we're accepting public feedback on that. And in fact, we're going to do a Facebook Live event on January 15th on the Memphis 3.0. Facebook page. Um, January 15th? January 15th, yeah. Okay, I'll put something, I'll try to share that on my, the Memphis Metropolis Facebook page. Um, and and those are, those changes are, are, some of those changes rather are similar to a couple of the UDC changes uh, that we have going right now as well. Again, sort of more pertaining to um, the, the, the distinction of high intensity and low intensity commercial, specifically right now, gas stations and used tire shops are allowed by right in CMU one, which is again, the low intensity commercial district. Uh, and so the, the proposed change in the UDC would make them only allowed by special use permit, which obviously uh, is uh, uh, something that would have to be approved by the land use control board and the city council uh, to be uh, for those types of uses to be allowed within the CMU1 district. So uh, it helps to make a better distinction between uh, CMU1 and CMU3, uh, but also gives the public an opportunity to weigh in uh, whenever those proposals are being made uh, in, in those CMU1 or more neighborhood oriented districts. Okay, that's a, that's actually very, you know, very important, I think, that those won't be allowed by right anymore. Um, that's just something that really gets 
neighborhoods riled up for good reason. Sure, absolutely. Well, so John, thanks for coming. Um, you've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I've been talking to John Zena, who's the director of the Memphis and Shelby County Division of Planning and Development. And we've been talking about Memphis 3.0 comprehensive plan, among other things. And John, I feel like we just, even though we've been talking for almost an hour, we've just scratched the surface. So you're just going to have to come back on sometime soon and we'll do an even, we'll completely <laughs> bore the listeners out of their minds by just de- doing an even deeper dive into some of these planning subjects that are so, you know, interesting to me and so important. Well, I'm, I'm just proud that I only got one bell on me. <laughs> well, I'm just uh, I'm being uneasy with you. Okay, well, thanks, John. And thank I will talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Memphis Metropolis on WYXR 91.7 FM. I'm Emily Trenum. Memphis Metropolis airs every Monday at 1, so please tune in again next week. You can listen to past programs on our program page at wyxr.org or on memphismetropolis.com. You can also follow us and send feedback on social media. Now, stay tuned for Memphis Undercover with Nancy.